I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So we are, as you know, uh, officially back. Uh, and while I have said uh, the last couple of weeks that it's not a guarantee that we'll be doing an episode every week, uh, we will have episodes for the next few weeks. Uh, so be sure to come back every Thursday uh, to see what episodes are now available. Uh, before we move on with uh, today's episode, I did want to remind you that uh, we are sponsored by Faith Life TV, and I specifically wanted to mention the documentary Fragments of Truth, uh, which is uh, being, I guess, distributed as the word. Uh, officially, it's being uh, featured by Faith Life TV, uh, but the reason that I say distributed is because on the evening of April 24th, as a function of Fathom Events, you can actually go and see Fragments of Truth uh, in the theater. So if you check out uh, Fathom Events and and find out uh, uh, where it is showing near you and the showtimes, um, it sounds very interesting. It is a documentary about the reliability of the New Testament. So uh, you can check that out. And then uh, when you're done with that, you can head on over to Faith Life. And uh, if you click on the ad at morethanonelesson.com, that can take you where you need to go so that you get your first month for free. After that, it is $4.99 a month. So uh, once again, go to morethanonelesson.com and click on the ad for Faith Life TV uh, or go to Fathom Events and check out Fragments of Truth. Okay. So, um, trying to think if there's anything. Yeah. Uh, Bob has written some reviews over at, uh, more than one lesson. He's written a review of the death of Stalin. He wrote one about Isle of dogs and about, uh, ready player one. And then, uh, our friends over at, uh, uh, two geek soup are still working their way through the, uh, the Marvel, uh, cinematic universe. Uh, I believe our friend Reed was on the Dr. Strange episode, uh, which is available at more than one lesson.com right now. And, uh, we are getting up to it. We are almost to Avengers infinity war, which I'm excited slash trepidatious about, uh, for reasons that I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about at some point, but right now we're talking about a different Marvel film. We're talking about a very successful film called black Panther. And in order to discuss it, I'm going to welcome in my co-host Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Good to be back. I know it's been a while since yeah. people have heard. Well, they've heard you plenty on your own show, <laughs> which is quickly supplanting my podcast, which is the real reason I came back. I wasn't ready to come back, but I was like, I can't let, you know, this guy with his dumb horror show, uh, in every sense of that term that basement. Genre. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the place where Satan dwells, that's what I like to think. Um, 
but yeah. So what have you guys been when, been talking about over at uh, Fear of God? So most eminently, I'm not quite sure when this episode will post, but most eminently, we've been recording on uh, Guillermo del Toro. Okay. Um, we specifically hit on four of his works with a slight prologue. Um, we had uh, The Devil's Backbone and Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. Uh, the slight prologue was uh, the Guillermo del Toro produced, but J.A. Bayona directed The Orphanage. So, Indeed, um, yes, yes. So, But yeah, we've been doing that, and then uh, we're this year we're going to be tagging in periodically with the works of Alfred Hitchcock, a few selected works here and there, mm-hmm. uh, some of his more popular or more uh, horrific, as it were. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and we've got a series that we're gearing up for that I'm extremely excited about uh that we're just at the moment calling funny or die which we'll just be looking at horror comedies so i'm very very much looking forward to that but yeah we're having a good time have you seen behind the mask oh the rise of leslie Bergman? absolutely which i I just i just purchased on uh scream factory blu-ray and was re-watching it it's delightful yeah it's it's so great that movie took me so by surprise because i thought it was going to be pure spoof yeah it was unexpected for that wonderful third act in which it becomes very legitimate so it was and they changed the way that in which they shoot it like they use yeah. a different camera. It's 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 good stuff. Yeah, it's really great. Um, but yeah, we, we're we're having a lot of fun over at Fear of God. So yeah, we hope our listeners are too. We're doing pretty well. And then you are also writing a series for uh, the Feel and Film uh, website and podcast. What's that all about? So I wanted to. Um, I had done as an exercise um, and am writing reviews for it now for more than one lesson. Uh, on the works of Alfred Hitchcock. I watched all of Alfred Hitchcock's films in chronological order. Um, so I watched you know, them pretty successively. There would be a mm. week where I might watch four that week and right. then go for a little while and maybe watch two or whatever. Especially but, early on, the the movies aren't very long. And right, yeah. exactly. Um, so uh, I watched all 53 of Hitchcock's films in chronological order, and it was a really rewarding experience uh, to the degree that for the foreseeable future, I would really like to take a creative's work and do a similar thing, just chart their their work chronologically, yeah. providing for myself as much historical context as I can, but really yeah. just sort of absorbing the material. Where do they go? What things stand out? Right. Uh, what sort of general rhythms and trends? Uh, does this next film, in context of the film that came right before it, make a different sense or feel yeah. of, of a different piece. So over at Feel and Film, I'm doing that right now with the works of Clint Eastwood. Um, but Eastwood... Directorial works. No. I What I decided to do was I decided that for a figure like Eastwood, it would be important to take into account his uh, feature film work as an actor as well as his work as a director. So, okay. so that is 60 films. Um, but the, the films of, uh, him in a starring role. Right. Um, so like for instance, there's a couple of cameos along the way that I easily bypass, but if he, if he features prominently in it, then, uh, like Casper, he's in, Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. He's in Casper for like three seconds. Um, but, and it's really him too. Like it was, it wasn't just like a voice or something, but, um, so, uh, but yeah. So uh, what were you thinking of though? Paint your wagon. Paint your wagon. He's in enough that I did it. No, and, I know. And, it's uh, how was it? 
I did not care for it. (laughs) I did not care for it almost at all. Noted great singers Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood (laughs) in a musical. But what's interesting about Paint Your Wagon, and I know we're here to talk about something different, but um, what's interesting about Paint Your Wagon is that was the first time in Eastwood's career that his love of music really emerged. Hmm. So he did all of his own singing, um, and then you frequently see it show up, uh, at least in where I'm in in his filmography. It already has shown up. I haven't yet watched Bird, but I know he did Bird. Um, in Play Misty for me, he plays a radio DJ who specializes yeah. in jazz. He has a love for jazz. He would eventually become a composer of the music in some of his own films. So, mm-hmm. so Paint Your Wagon is interesting as a prelude to some of those things that would follow, which is precisely why I love doing this. Right. I love watching them in that context. Even though I will be honest with you, Paint Your Wagon is way too long. It's two hours and 45 minutes long, and it, which is about an hour and 45 minutes too long. Yeah. I did not enjoy that movie. Um, but there have been, I have been surprised at how strong a large section of his filmography was, even as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously the Leone trilogy gets a lot of play and deservedly so, but I'm surprised at how strong, uh, even more, you know, low key films like two mules for sister Sarah right. or Kelly's heroes. I was yeah. surprised at how strong I found them to be. Yeah. Um, and then I am tracking his directorial work as well. So it's all chronological. So in other words, when he directs, uh, the, the Iger sanction and then, uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, and then follows that up with the enforcer, which he only acted in. Right. I watched them in that sequence because I want to find out what happened that same year. And I guess in a situation like his, where, as his career goes along, the movies he directs are so infl- are so um, informed by the movies that he acted in. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Unforgiven wouldn't exist if not for the Man with No Name trilogy. No, no, not you know, Gran Torino would not exist without Dirty Harry. Right, you know, right. just he as a director, he seemed to want to comment on the stuff that made him famous and it wasn't his, you know, he was an actor before he was a director. And so, uh, yeah, I guess with somebody like him, it's, that is the way to, to watch his stuff. Sure. Sure. And I'm having a lot of fun. So it's, it's been very rewarding. And like I said, I might've stumbled into a new tradition for myself, you know, obviously every year I won't have the disposable time or the active time to be able to gorge on 50 or 60 plus filmographies. In a situation like that, you're just like, I'm going to watch the directorial works of Charles Lawton. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And like, all right, hey, done. Nope. Yeah, there's an evening. One yes. out of, you know, 364 more days, I can yeah. do whatever I want to exactly. this year. Um, so, yeah, that's the, but but I, I feel uh, invigorated by it. Um, I'm a layman. I don't, I don't, I didn't go to film school and don't know a ton about film history. So this is very much like, I am writing the articles and the reviews, but it is very much a sort of a just, you know, a very lay person's, perspective on these films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, you can look at those on feel and film. And then I'm also doing the same thing, uh, for my Hitchcock experiences, uh, over at more than one lesson. All right. So you are just, uh, a, a, a busy little bee. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Indeed. That's, I'm, I'm, like I'm in saying. high demand if I do say so myself, Absolutely. you know, and, uh, and of course there's readlackey.com. Uh, well, yeah, well, readlackeyblog.wordpress.com, uh, but indeed, yeah. Same, you know, hey, that sounds just as professional as readlackey.com. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, but yeah, I, I, I have, uh, I've been trying my best to, to uh, just get into the 
more of the discipline of writing because mm -hmm. I can be a very lazy writer. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to change that and it's in my power to change that. So it's just, you know, a little too late. Uh, I say too late not in a defeatist sort of way, but like yeah. should have, should have been doing this a long time ago. So yeah. Well, you're making up for last, lost time. That's the way I look at it. Doing my best. Uh, and then I did want to, before we move on and, uh, we've been going for a while now, so I probably uh, should, um, a reminder that uh, I'm going to be at the International Christian Film Festival in early May. I will be giving a talk called uh, A Movie Isn't What It's About, It's How It's About It, nice. uh, based on the Roger Ebert quote. I didn't actually title it that. Um, that came from a, my description of a much more generically titled talk. But <laughs> I appreciate that they chose to to go with the, the longer title that hopefully will pull more people in. But uh, sure. yeah, it's uh, the festival this year. It's getting bigger and bigger. And I think it's safe to say this is the biggest it's ever been. Like they're wow. kicking things off with a Newsboys concert. And Seriously? Then, yeah. Wow. And then David A.R. White's going to be there. Kirk Cameron's going to be there. Oh my Various, uh, I think the Kendrick brothers are going to be there. Like a lot of people in the world of film are yeah. going to be there. It would be great if they all attended my talk. <laughs> um, sure. And sure. by the way, is my talk going to culminate in a discussion of VidAngel? It will. It may. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yes. Shots fired. That's so great. I'm very excited. That's so great. Um, but uh, because that's the thing is, you know, there was there was my going off script uh, when I presented the screenplay award. People sure. seemed to like that. Mm -hmm. And then my first talk, people really seemed to respond to that. My second talk, there are one or two people who came up to the table and said they disagreed, but they were very nice and very respectful yeah, sure. about it. I have found, though, on Facebook that if you... If you insult people's VidAngel, they get very upset. If you insult people's anything on Facebook, they get very upset. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, but yeah, and I don't plan on insulting. Uh, mm -hmm. I really want to spell That's out why I think it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm working hard not to because it's it's so easy to when talking about Christian film or just Christian viewing habits in general. It's very easy to adopt a, uh, an elitist you know, high horse mm -hmm. attitude. And it's something that I am prone to. And I don't think it's very Christian. I don't think it's very helpful. Yeah, and so yeah. I need to try and change that. But so part of me was like, do I even need to talk about VidAngel? Uh, yes, mm. I do. Yeah. Mm. No nice. question about it. If I'm going to talk about how every element of a film is part of what that movie is, mm -hmm. well, a big part of VidAngel is Christian saying like, well, that wasn't necessary. And it's like, oh, so you feel entitled to take it out because you right. deemed it unnecessary. Right. You know, well, mm -hmm. that plays into my talk. So nice. anyway, nice. all right. But yeah, so listeners, if you feel intrigued by that and you want to be somebody there, that's hopefully on my side uh, and Hey, buy a book uh, then for cheaper than you can get it on my website. So that's the other thing. Nice. Um, so yeah, uh, go to international CFF.org uh, or just Google international Christian film festival. Uh, and you can uh, find out more information about my talk. Okay. We've been going for almost 14 minutes. Oh man. And we've got, and so listeners are very aware of what you and I are doing. <laughs> But the one thing we haven't been doing is talking about Black Panther, directed by <laughs> Ryan Coogler. But you know what? We're going to change that right now. This so second. what's in the news today? No. Um, okay. Black Panther currently, uh, you know, se uh, setting records and shattering box office, you know, here and there. And uh, it's a film you just can't get away from. It was heavily anticipated. Uh, it, it 
did very well. It came out at a very specific time, uh, in this country. And I think it was, it was, uh, it timed out very well. If it had come out two years ago, you know, it's a Marvel film. It's going to be successful no matter what, but I don't think it would have had this level of success if it had come out last year, like two years ago. I also don't think it would have, it would have had this level of success if it had come out, say during the summer. Oh yeah. Like as we've seen from stuff like Deadpool and stuff and and something like this, if you take a big tentpole movie and release it in February or maybe even early March, there isn't actually that much competition. Yeah. Um, at least nothing of the same scale as something like this. Yeah. And so I I think it's done very well. I don't mean to say that as though the film is bad and the, the, Oh, the only reason it's doing well is because of this. It's not that, but that is part of it. Um, it's an element. I mean, timing, timing is important. Um, (laughs) I'm saturated with the films of Eastwood right now. So like a line from unforgiven that I think about frequently with certain successes like this, Mm -hmm. um, he says in unforgiven, uh, when asked like, you know, who did you shoot first, you know, because you're supposed to shoot the best first. He says, I was lucky in the order. Yeah. And I think you could, absolutely say that about Marvel's cinematic universe in general, that yeah. they've been very lucky in the order because they're, they're, they're one sort of notifiable, it wasn't a bomb, it was successful, but their one sort of notifiable ding down came in Iron Man 2 very early. And then since right. then, they've been very lucky in the sequence of like the risk of Guardians of the Galaxy, the risk right. of, uh, and it wasn't much of a risk, certainly not as much of one as Guardians of the Galaxy, but the risk of Black Panther. Like that. And I think Ant-Man was a risk as well. Absolutely. It's called Ant-Man. Yeah. You know? Right. right. Um, yeah. I think they have been very shrewd hmm. in the choice of when to release stuff both as far as what, what characters to reveal first. Sure. And then when, because yeah, Iron Man two was not remarkably good. I think is better than most people give it credit for, especially from a character arc standpoint. Like Mm. we see a genuinely self-destructive Tony Stark in that movie, like more so than we see anywhere else. Mm. Um, and it is, you know, and so there's a, scene where he's fighting with Don Cheadle and it's like a genuine fight and moments like that are pretty effective uh, Mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, but yeah, and it did very well financially. So they weren't worried about that, but I think a lot of people were disappointed, but Hey, here comes Thor. Here Mm -hmm. comes Captain America. Like the thing about rolling movies out as quickly as Marvel does and as consistently is it never really gives people much of a chance to dwell on the bad ones for that long. Right. Um, by which I mean Thor, the dark world and, (laughs) uh, incredible Hulk, um, which, you know, and that one feel like it feels like it doesn't even totally count because it wasn't Ruffalo. Right. Um, but it's still part of it, you know? Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think black Panther, I think it timed out exactly right. I think it's interesting that they, that this is not the introduction of the character. They first roll him out in civil war and give us a a basic introduction. But what's more is the character featured very prominently into the advertising. It was not a surprise in civil war that he showed up. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, you almost feel like in, in old uh, network TV terms, there was the backdoor pilot, um, right, which right. is we have a supporting character of a, of a TV show and we have an episode devoted exclusively to them and their home life or whatever. And it's just like, why are we spending so much time with this t- this person? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we're testing it to see 
yeah. can this person have their own show? Exactly. And I, it, and black Panthers, his section of, um, of civil war feels like that a little bit. Same with Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. But, uh, not that, I mean, they were always going to give Spider-Man his own movie. Like mm-hmm. if the MCU got the character, they're absolutely going to oh, take advantage sure, of it. Sure. But yeah. And so by the time I saw black Panther, I was very excited about it partially because I'm a fan of Ryan Coogler. Me um, too. I think Fruitvale station is a very good movie, but I thought, creed is for especially directorially like it's it's almost virtuosic in some of its sequences yeah. he's just so self-assured mm-hmm. uh he just knows he just seems to have in in a lot of the best filmmakers they just seem to know instinctively the best way to shoot something yeah for maximum impact but not manipulation true you know true creed um, is staggeringly good like yeah. like the further the further i get from it i'm wearing a shirt right now that says one punch one, or one step one punch one round at a time it is amazing to me how kugler has uh just this insane instinct yeah. for how to imbibe his story at least so far we're only yeah. three films in but to imbibe his story with real rich meaning and yeah. And to be able to take a franchise like the Rocky movies that, you know, I thought Rocky Balboa was wonderful. It was very good. Yes. But it was essentially a send off for the character. Yeah. And so to take that and then to endow such new life into it and make what I think has a real, not to uh, overuse the metaphor, but a real fighting chance at being the arguably one of the best in the franchise. I'd say it's, it's the second best in the franchise. Um, that's terribly impressive. So yes, Ryan Coogler was what made me the most excited about black Panther more than any singular element of the film itself. They were, yeah. I mean, for a while, uh, because they had made a decision that like they were going to have an African-American director. And for a while it was Ava DuVernay Mm. who had made Selma and I w- having seen Selma and it's a very, very good movie, but there was, I didn't really see anything in that film that led me to think she would be a great director of specifically action spectacle. Mm-hmm. I wound up as listeners know from a couple weeks ago, I wound up really liking a wrinkle in time, mm-hmm. not necessarily loving it, but loving elements about it. Yeah. And I think she handled the spectacle quite well, mm-hmm. but it's a, but action spectacle is different. Yeah. Um, and awesome. I think there are sequences in black Panther that, are, are so effective, um, from an, from an action standpoint that, uh, I can't imagine anybody else doing it as I've said on this show and on battleship pretension, I am not a fan. I'm not instinctively a fan of one take, uh, sequences, Mm. but both in Creed and in black Panther, he does it and he does it in a way where it has the impact that those sequences are supposed to have. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the thing about a one take sequence is it's supposed to have a fluidity to it that just immerses you in the action. And only afterwards do you realize, oh, that was all one take. Right. Exactly. Often what happens is you realize about 30 seconds in that it's all one take because there would be natural moments of cutting that they aren't doing. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're just thinking about how impressive the take is as opposed to the action. Exactly. And that is not the impression that I got from a couple of those sequences in Black Panther. It was only yeah. afterwards that I was like, 
Oh, that's all one take. Boy, that was really effective. To be honest with you, and this this is a testament to Coogler, I know because I've seen the film a handful of times, the one take fight sequence in Creed, but mm-hmm. I am not able to remember now. What's the one take? I, I, I don't remember the one take from Black Panther. I don't know if it's officially a casino, oh, okay. but it's that okay. part. That moment is, is oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I, and I recall, I think you're right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm the sequence that, that seems very James Bondy, if I'm being it, honest it with does. you. It does, it does. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, yeah, and see, even in that, and again, it's a, it's a testament to Coogler's talent that I didn't even register it in that moment because I'm so engaged with the story. Did you, But that's the thing is, like, that sequence, I thought was just, it was so fun, and it mm-hmm. just was so thrilling, and I was just, I was on the edge of my seat, not that I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? But it was just like, I just found myself smiling because there was just like the joy of filmmaking on the screen. Yeah. And you just yeah. got this sense that he and everybody else was just enjoying themselves tremendously sure. in making that film and that sequence. And so, you know, is that, was that sequence effective for you? Oh, very much so. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's one of, it's one of the probably three or four most memorable moments sequences yeah. in the film for yeah. me. Uh, yeah. And no, I, I, I loved that moment. I do agree with you. It did feel, uh, <laughs> I, I heard this joke somewhere, and I cannot recall where I heard it, but I remember that casino moment substantiating it for me. It said, Black Panther is the Lion King James Bond mashup we never knew we needed. <laughs> and, yeah. and I was like, that's that's exactly what that sequence really was. No. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I think that's that culminates in that big car chase. Um, yeah. And, and I feel like that's one of the things that I would really play, praise Black Panther for is it's really tempting to just saturate with a lot of action. Right. And I feel like the the action to thematic or I'll I'll call them more downbeat moments is very well balanced in Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you never go for too long uh, without getting an action sequence or a tense moment, but then at the same time you're not so bombarded with them that you feel exhausted by the end. It has a natural rhythm to it. That is yes, absolutely. When I think of like sequences, even by good directors that I feel like just bombard to the point where I'm just tired after a while, but the sequence is still going on. Like I think quite frankly of the T-Rex versus Kong sequence in Peter Jackson's King Kong, where he winds Mm -hmm. up fighting like three different T-Rexes and it just keeps going and going. And after a while it's like, look, I, I recognize that this is good filmmaking, but like you said, there needs to be a natural rhythm and there need to be beats yeah. that seem to happen organically. But that seemed to be just spectacle for its own sake and a desire right. to up the ante on the old dinosaur versus Kong sequences we'd seen before. Right. Whereas this, when it goes from, you know, this fight and this sequence within the casino to like, okay, well now the characters are trying to get away. Well, of course, our hero, like they want to, the the villain in that sequence is uh, Andy Serkis as uh, Ulysses Claw, mm-hmm. and he is a wanted man in Wakanda. In, in Wakanda, Wakanda like, right. yeah. like he has killed people, and they they are not going to let him slip through their fingers again. And so, of course, him getting away is not an option. Mm-hmm. So they are going to follow him. They are right. going to chase him down, and then the film takes on the sequence takes on a different type of action quality, but one that I, st- I think still rings true. Um, and I, th- I thought it was exhilarating. And this is a thing that I've thought about more. Um, 
uh, as I've gotten older in regards to action sequences. This is something, I, oddly enough, I said about the recent Tomb Raider movie, oh. is that a good action sequence for me is one where the director like comes through every nook and cranny of what this sequence can be and seizes on those opportunities mm. as opposed to stretching things out unnecessarily sure. or artificially, you know, by, by recognizing that, Oh, we now have a chase. We have a car chase. Like, well, of course you would have a car chase. So it's him. It's, it's Kugler like leaning into his ambition and not being like, Oh Claw got away. You know, oh, we right. already had a re we already had a really great action sequence. It was already it's already very breathless. Ah, but he got away. Mm -hmm. You know, they right. don't do that. They they extend it because it should be extended, and it. I feel like there there are other sequences like that yeah. where again it just I feel like Kugler just has a an instinct to him mm -hmm. uh, as a director. I think he just understands the natural pacing and rhythm of filmmaking. Now I yeah. do think the film from an action standpoint has some third act issues as every Marvel film does. Sure. I but, um, but within that, I still think it's very effective. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I feel like the, the thing that pushes it over the edge, uh, it is a very effective film, but I think the thing that pushes it over the edge, most especially is, as we've already mentioned, the timing of it and mm -hmm. it's particular, attention to to cultural respect i'll call mm -hmm. it as it were um and i think there is it is just the moment for this film to really make the waves that it's making right. i mean to so i like black panther quite a bit mm -hmm. i would even say parts of it i love parts uh, of it yes um but it would have been relatively mediocre and it might still be making close to yes close to what it's doing yeah. because as we'd already mentioned there's a there's a certain element of of timing here yeah. where a film like this almost takes on a weight and a and a burden of of being beyond what it is yeah. and i think even kugler and the the performers in the film would admit that there is something beyond just yeah what they're bringing to it that is extending into the sort of the cult yeah. cultural ethos about surrounding the film. Yeah, I think it, I mean, obviously it's Marvel. It's going to make money no matter what, but I think it's staying power in my opinion can be boiled down to yes, obviously some really quality filmmaking and it's cultural moment. But in all honesty, I think it boils down to the villain. I think I Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger first off is one of the better Marvel villains. Like the oh. MCU has a villain problem. Yes. Um, where most of them, certainly the cosmic villains are pretty run of the mill, mm -hmm. uh, which by the way could absolutely extend to Thanos when the time comes. We'll see by yeah. casting Josh Brolin. I think they're subverting that a little bit, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Um, but they could still do it. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason we see Loki over and over again. I'd say too many times. Mm, okay, uh, yeah. And it's because he worked really well and they don't have enough. They don't have other villains that, you know, audiences are clamoring to see. That's true. You know, yeah. nobody wants to see Roman uh, Ronan, the defiler. I, Is that his name? I don't even remember the, Who cares? I, yes, I know. Who I know. Cares? It's Ronan. It's yeah. Lee Pace. It's whatever. Yeah. It's, it's over. <laughs> like, it's, or Malekith, the elf the dark elf or something by yeah 
Yeah, from whatever. Thor. Who yes. cares? Yes, exactly. Um, when but, you first said his name, I did not remember the film yeah, he was. Why from. would you? So, yes, um, I understand. And so, whereas Black Panther has two really effective villains, yeah. one is definitely a lead villain, and one is a supporting villain. Sure, but uh, but yeah, if it weren't for Killmonger, the way he is written, the way he is played. And the way both of those things do play in to the cultural moment. Right. Um, I think that's where that's where the film suddenly was was raised up. Like the number of people on Facebook, on Twitter that have talked about the film and then very quickly jumped to Killmonger and, and Michael yeah. B. Jordan. Mm -hmm. I think that is worth noting. And I do think it actually speaks to a certain weakness of the film, which is I don't think T'Challa. Mm which is black Panther. I don't find him that remarkably compelling. I don't blame Chadwick Boseman. I think he's fine, but I think the character is for the most part straightforward, conventional and a little bit bland. Okay. Yeah. Um, which makes Killmonger all the more dynamic. Sure. You know, yeah. if you had a lesser villain, I feel like people would not find the film quite so effective because the hero is his emotional beats. Aren't that, interesting to me well they're common they're so, very common it's so, a conventional character yeah and i think that's the problem is like uh, like i uh, i don't disagree with what you're saying but i do think it's it's sort of inherent in the it, it's it's hamlet it is i mean i made sure. a joke earlier it's lion king it's this you know the king is dead i've got to take on the mantle and that is a very yeah. and because t'challa is uh, a benevolent character at his core mm-hmm that is inherently not that interesting because yeah. because uh, I'll lean on the character of Superman for a second. Boy Scouts aren't that interesting. Yeah. And and so it is really anchored in. And, and that was smart. I don't know how much Marvel let Coogler just do. And here's mm -hmm. why I'm saying that, because when you look at Coogler's filmography and how well Black Panther fits in with what he extended from Fruitvale Station and Creed. Yeah. Then it would be almost easy to say like, man, Marvel just let Coogler do whatever he wanted to do. Yeah. But we're talking about Marvel who's owned by Disney. So we know that's not true. Right. I agree with you. It's probably a certain shrewdness on their part and a, a very savvy sense of placement and timing right. to, to enable those kinds of things and to enable to, to understand how much leeway to give Coogler. Yeah. That having said, all I'm, all I'm basing that on is yes, the culmination of what Killmonger wants Mm -hmm. how he his own personal story is quite sympathetic. I think that's another thing that the Marvel villains have suffered from is I don't I don't find much yeah. sympathy for almost any of them. Yeah. Uh, even Loki, who I who I do wind up adoring at times. Right. Uh, I don't find much sympathy for him. But Killmonger, I'm immediately like, I mean, I don't know if my wife will listen to this or not, but shout out to her. She she at our home was like justice for Killmonger, <laughs> justice for Killmonger, you know, <laughs> which which has a certain sense to it in yeah. what you're seeing um, that I think because he is an inherently sympathetic character and that it is merely where he is taking his ideologies that makes yeah. him the villain. He's not inherently the villain just uh, because he has some power hungry need to satiate yeah. his ego. 
He's got a very substantial reason for doing what he's doing that's rooted in who he was as a child, what he's witnessed, what he lacks, and what he wants. And what he sees other people have. Yes. What they have effortlessly. Yeah. That was just handed to them. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that speaks to a, a, uh, an issue with the T'Challa character is that all the seeds are there. Mm. The seeds, like he is conventional, but the idea is like he could have been a little bit haughtier. He could have Mm. been a little bit more naive. He could have been a little bit more indecisive. He could have been all these things that, that deepen the character, maybe make him a little bit less likable. Mm. Yeah. So that he, so that he, you know, he is royalty. Mm -hmm. And while he is making the decision to literally fight for his country, and, and I think that that is a, a humble decision. Sure. I don't think it comes out of a, a sense of narcissism or anything like that. But you could have added that in because right. it's something that the other that other Marvel characters don't necessarily have, you know, mm-hmm. except maybe Tony Stark. But right. in this case, because, you know, T'Challa is born into this, it is thrust upon him and he doesn't seem to know what to do with it or mm-hmm. what to do ab- about it. And then Killmonger who is, you know, the embodiment of will, he has a goal and he's going to achieve it. And T'Challa doesn't have any of that. Like, I feel like you could just take everything that's there and just dial it up just a little bit. So that the character is actually less conventional, Mm -hmm. you know, by making him more like Hamlet and less like a standard, uh, superhero or just action movie hero. I feel like you could have had a, a character who by finally embracing what it means to be the king of this country, mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't know. It's, it, I feel like there, there, it was all there and it just needed to be dialed up a little bit, but honestly, like not merely Killmonger, but th- there is such a huge cast of characters, all of whom were being introduced to for the first time. Yeah, And I yeah. think in some ways that's a problem. Hmm. especially when we have a lead that we're supposed to be on board with. Um, there comes a moment. So this speaks to an awesome element of the film. And I think a flaw hmm. there comes a moment. Listeners, you've probably seen black Panther, but in case you haven't, there's some spoilers here. Sure. Um, there comes a moment when it looks as though T'Challa has been killed and he's, yeah. he's absent for a while. Mm-hmm. And I literally had this moment. It's like, wait a minute. What if this whole thing was a trick and T'Challa's sister takes up the mantle of black Panther. Mm, Interesting. You know, and I thought like that would be really interesting. Yeah. Um, because then it's like, well, it's still somebody in the Royal line Mm -hmm. Marvel. Yes. They don't have a lot of Africa, a lot of, you know, non-white heroes, but they also don't have a lot of female heroes. Sure. So I thought like that would be interesting. And for a moment I thought they were doing it, Mm. which speaks to the, the, and the, the tone that Kugler was striking, which is that like, Hey, anything can happen. Yeah. You don't yeah. know what to expect. Here's the problem. It does not speak to the dynamic quality of T'Challa that I genuinely thought they were dropping him. Uh, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like there need. it sounds strange. There needs to be an element of like, if he, he's a super dynamic character mm-hmm. so that when that happens, well, obviously they're not going to kill him. I not, but that's the thing is I think I would, I think I prefer to be genuinely surprised and not knowing what's going to happen. But I think in this case, I am that simply because the character is not dynamic enough to warrant my, my assumption that they're not going to kill him. Off. Right. Right. Um, well, and you would, you would have to feel the weight 
of, I think even if they had done that, people would be, and this speaks to your point, people would be more perhaps excited for the pivot and yeah. the surprise yeah. than they would grievous of the loss of T'Challa. Yeah. And I think that speaks to your point that, that he himself, while certainly a noble character. And again, I agree with you. I think yeah. Bozeman is, is giving it everything that he's got. Um, but it does speak a bit to the, um, plasticity of the character Yeah, that he, um, that he is, uh, yeah. When he went over that, when he went over that cliff, I, yeah. I knew I was like, there's, there's no way this is right. There's no way this is going to, because it, it really was, I'll tell you what, what, and this speak, goes back to Killmonger. I'll tell you what I thought they were going to do. That was, that would have been a surprise to me and that I would have loved. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really torn, uh, about the way th the ending related to Killmonger. See if we can keep going back to Killmonger. Yeah. But where T'Challa did something that I did find genuinely interesting is when he offers to restore Killmonger. We can, you know, the, the, the right. climactic battle and Killmonger has been mortally wounded. And, yeah. and so then T'Challa is like, and I, I was sitting there in the theater and I was like, man, is he going to be his ally now? Right. Like, is this going to be, a, and, and is that going to be like kind of what they've done with Thor and Loki? Yeah. Where it's like, occasionally, they can team up and I, I get kind of excited when Thor and Loki yeah. team up, but I also kind of know Loki is always a threat and yeah. he's always a wild card. Um, and I was wondering, are you going to try to play that dynamic off and yeah. keep Killmonger around? And then it did feel I was torn because I thought that might've been really interesting, but then at the same time, it is the more appropriate choice for Killmonger to, to, to do what he does and right. refuse that, refuse that option. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's the one moment that perhaps the only moment that I can think of that feels somewhat unconventional from T'Challa yeah. is him offering to to legitimately heal him and restore him using Wakandan technology. And it would have been, I think, an even stronger beat for the character if earlier he's he's a guy who it's not that he's reluctant it's that he is fine with the status quo mm -hmm. and quite literally like this guy is shaking up the status quo so you know what let him die yeah but yeah. it's like no i've learned that my that our status quo was not built on you know saintly behavior sure so i'm going to try to subvert that i'm going to do a selfless and an unpredictable thing because mm -hmm. there's no guarantee that if I heal Killmonger, he's not just going to come right back at me. Yeah. I can't guarantee that. The right. one thing, the one way I can guarantee my kingdom safety is to let this guy die. Like if they had played that more, just that the character was, was reluctant, unquestioning content. And of course those are not great beats to play unless of course the character changes dramatically yeah. when he's pre presented with more information and he does change a little bit, but the other thing is that like, I don't know where the character goes from here. There will undoubtedly be a black Panther too. This film is too successful there for there not to be. Right. Right. But, right, right. You know, and I felt the same about captain America. I found myself thinking like, well, where are they going to take this character? But then by having him catch up to the world around him and realize how much it has changed and 
you know, running the risk and, and running the risk of becoming very cynical about it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that gives us somewhere for this, gives this character somewhere to go right. and beats to play. I genuinely do not see where T'Challa goes from here. Yeah, I, I could, I do agree because I, I can't imagine now there's, I know that, and I have not read this run, but I know that Ta-Nehisi Coates has written Black Panther okay. and, from some of my understanding of the the general arc of that is a lot of that tension. I don't know if it, and now actually that I'm saying this, I don't know if it's Ta-Nehisi Coates' run or if it's his successor, um, whose name I can't quite remember, but that some of the tension of the Black Panther comics is in he wants to run off and be an Avenger. Yeah. But he is the king of this nation that needs right. him. And this okay. constant flux of uh, the Avengers need me, And by extension, you could say the world needs me, but also my people need me. And I could see in a similar way where they took Captain America in Winter Soldier Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of ideological conflict. I could see them maybe maybe leaning in a little bit to that. And there are seeds. There are seeds for that in this because Wakanda is a place where we have only ever been concerned about ourselves. Mm. And at the end, it's no, we now need to be part of the world stage. And what does that look like for an individual who's running the country, but is also engaged with these heroes that, you know, trot the globe and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think that does, that does give, so yeah, I guess more of like, uh, you know, where like black Panther as a representation of the, his own country Mm -hmm. and where it plays into the world and and that sort of thing. Uh, I guess that does give the character somewhere to go. That'd be cool if they, if they do that, I'd be excited to see Um, something like that. But and I feel bad that we've spoken so ill about the character. He's still interesting to watch, but I do genuinely think that I think, I think with Killmonger, we have a villain not not totally uh, unlike the Joker from ten years ago. Mm. Batman is interesting, and I, and I think he has a lot of beats to play in The Dark Knight. But the reason, one of the reasons that we talk about that movie is because of the Joker, yeah. and that while he is not necessarily sympathetic because we don't know much about him, mm-hmm. his points are. And, and the, his philosophies are like, well, I can't really argue with that. Right. And, and right. it's the same with, with Killmonger. Yeah. I um, but I do want to mention some of the other characters. Um, I, I really enjoy Letitia Wright as, uh, Shuri, um, uh, his yeah. younger sister. I think she She's provides so the right amount of, uh, comic relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, I think that Angela Bassett and Forrest Whitaker provide, provide just the right amount of weight. Right. Um, and, uh, and I enjoyed, you know, Martin Freeman and I really enjoyed Winston Duke oh, as, yes. uh, uh, Mabaku. Um, part of my, you know, and listeners can, can read my review over, over at Battleship Pretension. One of the things that I like about this film is that not only does it introduce a lot of characters, it also introduce, introduces an entire culture that by the end of the film and kind of organically without really bringing things to a screeching halt, you have a pretty good idea of how this place runs. Yeah. Um, yeah. and the fact that there is this kind of more nativistic and a bit more primitive, or maybe just primal, uh, tribe within Wakanda run by this guy, um, is an interesting touch. And I, I really like that he is not simply portrayed as this thuggish, dumb, primitive leader. Right. Um, and that they actually turn to him for help later. It's I, again, like I do like from a script standpoint, just how much they establish and then 
bring back in oh, once yeah. it's been established. Like I thought that character was done. There's no real reason. Yeah. In, like instinctively, you know, when you watch something like this, you don't expect that character to come back. Certainly not in the capacity that he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the way they bring him in is, is I think delightful. And oh, I absolutely. think Winston Duke is, is a lot of fun to watch. Oh there yeah. Too. Uh, two things real quick. So Mbaku, the, the, I think a near brilliant script move speaking exactly to, to what you're saying is they come to him for help in a time of desperation. And here's where the script, I think, turns towards the brilliant mm-hmm. is because they come to him for help. And as a viewer, I'm sitting here like naturally he's going to help them. Right. But when it's revealed that no, as a matter of fact, he's already helping you yeah. because he's keeping T'Challa alive. Right. That you, you didn't come and ask him to do that. Yeah. And that I thought for the character, for the plot, yeah. for everything that they needed to, to, do beyond that moment like that all worked wonderfully like the fact that the fact that that she offers him this bulb Mm -hmm. he challenged t'challa at the very beginning yeah so it deepened that character so much with just a few simple narrative beats that they've come to him ask him for help offered him something that at least at one time he desired yeah and then no to find out that he's actually been uh been preserving t'challa in in this ice uh, pit, as yeah. it were, so that he can, so that he has a hope of someday surviving. Um, I read an apocryphal story. I hope it's true, um, but even if it's not, it's a delightful thing to think about. That he and uh, Lupita Nyong'o mm-hmm. um, went to see. I believe it was Winter Soldier. They went to see one of the Captain America movies, and Civil War was far too recent. They went to see, I believe, Winter Soldier. Their friends outside, Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o, are friends. They sat together at the Oscars, and and they went to see a Marvel movie. If it wasn't Winter Soldier, they no. went to see something together. And the story is that they said to each other, we're going to be in one of those one day. Yeah. And then now here they are in, in Black Panther. I hope that's true, because I think that's yeah. just a delightful sort of you know, person off the bus with a guitar in their hands kind of story. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is really, really lovely and really, and really quite nice. Um, I could also yeah. see if that story is true, I could see like the two of them like hanging out and word get, and they get a call from their agents mm-hmm. that like, Hey, they're making a black Panther movie. And both of them like, well, look, if, <laughs> if yeah. this isn't the one we're in, I guess we should probably just quit the business <laughs> <laughs> because come on, this is the obvious one. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, it does speak to the, uh, Mabaku character that like when we see him, we see him as purely aggressive. Right. And we give, we get the impression a little dumb. Sure. A little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not shrewd. Right. Uh, right. and then, yeah, the next time we see him, he is not merely sympathetic to them, but we actually see that this character that is so easily dismissible yeah. is actually, it's not that he's, he's more benevolent than we thought. It's that he's ahead of them. Yeah. Like I'm way ahead of you guys. And, and yeah. you just, and which means he's also ahead of the audience and it forces us to reassess him yeah. in a lot of different ways. Yes. That's a beat that I think, uh, didn't even really occur to me until just now that, yeah, mm-hmm. that he's already helping them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which speaks to this idea. It's like he is helping his King. Yeah. And it speaks to that. Like he does observe, he will challenge, 
Sure. But if he loses, he's going to observe the way things are Yeah, and yeah. is something that I find interesting. And stuff like that really helps to deepen the mythology of, of Wakanda yeah, and absolutely. the culture of Wakanda yes. and the people that live there. Um, and then uh, I will also mention, uh, unsurprisingly, I enjoyed Andy Serkis a lot in Age of Ultron when Claw sh- first shows up. Sure. Um, I think he's he's delightful. He has a lot of charisma and he is a gleeful sociopath. Mm-hmm. And in this, uh, when we see him, like nothing about him seems like a big time villain. Mm -hmm. Um, He definitely seems like a like a sergeant type, you know, an underboss. Um, But uh, but the fact that he is as much of a threat as he is and that he is that he is more than willing to kill people and do so with a smile on his face and do it like where he lets a guy run away just to kill him then. Yes. Um, right. Is, is really interesting. But, um, but yeah. And you know, one thing that I will say, okay, everybody spoilers again. One thing that I will say is that like this movie had two great villains and now they're both dead. (laughs) It's like, yeah, Marvel. Yeah. Look, I, I appreciate your willingness to engage with, you know, the claw character is killed in a way that's like, Oh wow. I wasn't expecting that. Sure. And then, yeah. And Killmonger is, is killed in a way that makes sense for the character. So it all works, but like, ah, yeah, you had two options Mm -hmm. and you went with zero. You're Mm -hmm. Oh, for two, as far as good (laughs) black Panther related villains that are, that could show up in other movies. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is that I think is like the biggest, problem I have with the film yeah. as far as how it relates to the larger, um, the larger mythos. Cause it yeah. would be interesting. I almost, I almost think that if Killmonger, let's say he had been healed, but he can't, he feels like he can't stay in Wakanda. He still has too much anger. He could have his own movie. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. it would have been so interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with him coming to terms with what he has seen and yes. what he wants to accomplish, but recognizing yes beginning to recognize that that perhaps the the vengeance elements and the controlling elements of his mission yeah uh, were not the the wisest or best ways to go about this yeah um, that yeah that would have been immensely fascinating and Michael B Jordan has charisma to spare I mean he's yeah so watchable I yeah I mean I first saw him as the character Wallace on the wire when he was very very young uh spoilers Wallace doesn't last long <laughs> um and I know that he was in Friday Night Lights and he just kind of he, he kind of laid low for a while and then I remember really liking him in Chronicle yeah uh, and then and then Fruitvale Station kind of is what put him on the map amongst certain people right. and then you know Fantastic Four did not help no um no. but Creed is what solidified him as like a very dependable leading man yeah, and with something and this, I think, you know, oh, he's I, I'm reluctant to say that he's a star, but he, I think this film has turned him into a star. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I would almost feel like, like Creed was sort of like beginning the conversation. Yeah. Is this guy? What? Yeah, he is. My wife would, uh, prides herself in saying that she loved him all the way back from all my children, <laughs> which it, it's one of those things where like for me, it was Friday night lights. Mm. His his turn in Friday Night Lights is very strong, um, but yeah, he's somebody that I've really been delighted every single time I see how just just how he attacks the role 
and how he how much substance he brings to even the smallest of touches to the characters that he has. So yeah, yeah. I think he's going to be around for quite a while. Yeah, and you know, and honestly, so we were talking, I don't remember if we were talking on mic or off, but there's there is going to be a campaign. Oh, we were talking off mic about this. Yes. There is undoubtedly going to be a best picture campaign for Black Panther. Mhm. If it came out later in the year, I'd say it has a very good chance. Sure. But, you know, not unlike Get Out last year, which came out early in the year, but made a surprising amount of money and was relevant to the social conversation. Um, Black Panther could stick around in the minds of people and it could be nominated for stuff for stuff. I think it has a very, you know, it all depends on what the studio chooses to do with it. I think it has a very good chance for supporting actor for, uh, for, for Michael B. Jordan. Yes. I agree. Um, but certainly a nomination, but also a, a possible win mm-hmm. for much the same reason as Heath Ledger 10 years ago. Yeah. I because agree. he is the, he is the face of that movie. Yeah. Um, when people come away, they think of these characters, mm-hmm. uh, partially because of how they're written, but also because of how they are played. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Uh, before we move on, I will say that, uh, as I said, I think that there are some third act issues, maybe not from a story standpoint, in fact, specifically not from a story standpoint, but from an action standpoint. Okay. Um, I don't instinctively dislike CGI. Um, and I think the CGI in the, in the final act of the film is fine, but you know, there is a sequence, the, the final fight between Black Panther and Killmonger in the midst of a completely, I'd say a blue screen, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, an area that is constructed, I'd say completely in a computer mm-hmm. and they're wearing masks. So my guess is it's arguable whether or not they're even there uh, um, that we're just watching something that might be completely animated. 100%. Um, it just, it took me out of it a little bit. Um, yeah, it feels different. It feels different from the yeah. rest of the, the, those challenge fights, specifically the first, T'Challa Killmonger fight. Yeah. And so much of the sequences on the battle when all of them, the Dora Majali, or if I'm saying that correctly, but all yeah. of the different tribes and clans come together uh, and and fighting, that all feels very real when it's yeah. just Killmonger and T'Challa in that train sequence, it definitely feels so dramatically different from the rest of what we've seen. Yeah. And I understand you're trying, you know, he's, we're trying to show like a certain cleverness of T'Challa and like Mm -hmm. using the technology that he's familiar with. Okay, sure. That's fine. Yeah. Um, well that's why from a story it's fine, but it's not as visually coherent to the rest of what we've seen. That's the thing. Yes. But it is, it's, it's what we've seen in other movies and Mm -hmm. certainly other Marvel movies, you know, suddenly a lot of what makes this film visually and tonally unique is stripped away. And as often happens in Mar- in even the best Marvel movies in the final fight, it just becomes this fairly bland, predictable thing. Yeah. And that is a shame, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, and it's one of those things that when people say, you know, I've read a number of people that say like, is black Panther the best superhero movie ever? And I want to be like, no, no, obviously no, no, no. not. Yeah. Um, it has, I'd say, I would say, uh, a, a top 10 comic book villain. 
And I'd say that pretty definitively. And, and I might even go a little bit higher. Yeah. Um, but best film it's like, look, it's got a lot of socially relevant themes that mm-hmm. I think it explores very well. It has a lot of sequences that are really solid. Um, but I mean, if we're comparing it to, in my opinion, Spider-Man two mm-hmm. or the dark Knight, right. Or the Avengers, which again, that has a ton of C- CGI, but we keep checking in on characters and where they are emotionally right. and the way right. they're working together. Um, you know, I feel like it, it doesn't, I feel like black Panther does not compare yeah. um, to, to those. Um, but it is still very effective in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly thematically. And that will actually bring us into the companion film, mm. which officially is the 2000 film X-Men directed by Brian Singer. But given what we're talking about, it could be essentially any of the X-Men films, right. but yeah. I'm choosing this one because it was the one in which the, the conflict between, uh, Charles Xavier and Magneto, um, is, is most prominent. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of it comes about in the third film, but what am I going to do? Have that be the companion film? <laughs> yeah. I I don't think no, so. No, no, no. Um, even though, you know, thematically they do a lot of really good stuff there. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, unsurprisingly, Brett Ratner just doesn't seem to understand how to juggle it all. Nope. <sighs> last time was a mess. Like, yeah, the, yeah. Le- less, the less said about that, the better. Yes. But yeah. Last time was a mess. Um, but boy, oh boy. It's cause I haven't, I haven't been an avid comic reader for a very long time, mm. but when I was, X-Men was my jam. Oh, nice. I I read Wolverine comics like at the time that he was like in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, like when he was really emerging as like a standout character. But all the X-Men like, you know, admittedly Wolverine and and the other characters, they'd been around since the 70s, you know, Colossus and Storm and Nightcrawler. Um, But in the 80s and early 90s is when these characters really started coming into their own as complex and I just loved it so much. Sure. And I loved, I love Nightcrawler and Wolverine. I just really responded to a lot of these characters. And of course there's the animated series. And I still remember, I love the animated series, 1991. I'm going to say the animated series didn't start until I think 92. Mm-hmm. So it might've been actually 1990, but my family and I were at, uh, the mall in Ventura mm. And we were just walking along and I, as I tended to do, I'm like, well, I'm just going to go over to, to KB toys and see what's there. <laughs> oh, KB toys. And as I walked up, I saw a display of X-Men toys. Like the, uh. vi- and I had no idea because of course, how could I possibly have known that they were, that these were coming? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there they were. And yeah, if you look at them now, they're as basic as can be. <laughs> um, but it's like almost, it's just there's Wolverine. And of course I bought him first. Sure. But like there's Wolverine and Colossus and Cyclops and Nightcrawler (laughs) and Storm. It's like, Oh, but what villains did the, Oh, well Magneto, of course. It's like, Oh, apocalypse odd. It's like juggernaut. They went with juggernaut. Are you kidding me? I was so excited. That's awesome. Like it was X-Men was a big deal to me. And I will also say by the way, that in that the infinity gauntlet was a big deal for me. Mm, Like that came about at exactly the right time. So I've been excited for this movie for a while and undoubtedly they're probably going to mess it up. (laughs) But, um, but yeah. And so when I first heard and I'd been, you know, anticipating an X-Men movie for a long time. Right. Right. And you know, my friends and I would talk about who we most wanted to play the characters and all that. Right. And, uh, then finally 
it was announced. I don't remember even seeing a trailer for X-Men. I just was very aware of when it was coming out. And, and by that time I wasn't a comic book person, Mm. but the kid in me was like, Oh boy, here we go. Here we go. Yes. And I saw it and it was not necessarily everything I wanted it to be, but it definitely accomplished a lot of what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that a problem with the X-Men movies, um, as opposed to the comics or the TV series is that those even even when readers didn't necessarily want them to be they, that wasn't, it was an ensemble. Yeah. You know, yeah. you would have, and, and the TV show as well. Like you would have a storm episode, a gambit episode, a rogue episode, sometimes all of them together and they would all feature into each other's episodes, but like, okay, this is the arc here belongs to this character. This one, right. Um, the movies come along and it's just like Wolverine featuring the X-Men. Mm, um, yeah, very much like there were basically three leads, professor X, Wolverine and Magneto. Yeah. And the other characters, you know, Nightcrawler featured pretty prominently in the second film played by Alan Cumming. Yeah. Um, but even then like nothing that amazing. Uh, and then the way they handled Sabretooth was just like nothing in the first film. It, That's there were some that. major issues yeah. there. Uh, it, it's, not a perfect film. I think X-Men two is the best of that franchise with, with day of future past days of future past coming in close. I was just going to say, I go back and forth between, and I would need to watch the two of them in quick succession to really, to really formulate my feelings about it. But mm-hmm. I always teeter back and forth between, uh, X two and days of future past as yeah. to what I think the best culmination. Cause in that list, maybe perhaps as a feature of, being uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence being cast in the role, but I think in later uh, yes. issues they begin to flesh out Mystique quite a bit. Yeah, um, but yeah, I I agree. I remember it's funny to say it in this context, but I remember you know when X Men came out, superhero films were a novelty. They were yeah. not. I mean, we didn't even have. Correct me if I'm wrong on my timeline, but I don't think we had the first Spider Man yet. No, that was 2002. So, yeah, so we X Men kind of cleared the path. Like it kind of established, like, oh, these can happen, mm-hmm. and they can be for families as opposed to like Blade, right? Um, which did predate X Men, yes, and is a Marvel property. But it, you're right; it's it's very yeah. niche. But, yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, if you look at X Men now, you definitely see that like this is a studio not quite sure how to deal with X Men. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly visually, because they're they they don't dress in any of the outfits. You right, know, they right, even make a right. joke about yellow spandex. Yes. Two years later, like Sam Raimi's like, no, we're gonna do Spider Man, and he's <laughs> gonna look like Spider Man. Yeah. We might we're gonna make some changes to Green Goblin, but Spider Man is gonna look the way he looks. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it is, it's, it's not a perfect film by any stretch, but it definitely got the job done for me as yeah. an, as an eager 18 year old. And having rewatched it again in preparation for this conversation, I think that, that my biggest issues with it, uh, revolve around the script. I think that, yeah. that, that the story is sound and mm-hmm. I think in large part, the performances are sound. Yeah. But there's some really glaring script issues with the, with the first X-Men movie. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the first thought that I had when I was watching black Panther and I was watching Killmonger is like, it's Magneto, like Mm -hmm. his, his, a lot of what he is fighting for a lot of what he is saying, his first name is Eric. Uh, and in, and in the X-Men movies, it's Eric Lencher is, is, uh, Magneto. And, uh, so I just thought like, okay, it's, and I didn't say it dismissively. I thought like, Hey, Magneto is one of the best 
comic book villains ever. And it's precisely oh. because he is so sympathetic mm-hmm. because he has the same goal as professor X and it's arguable whose method is more effective. Right. You know, I actually have some, some quotes in here by Martin Luther King. Um, in the, uh, in the old X-Men comics from the sixties, Professor X and Magneto were meant to be similar to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Yeah. Um, one much more like we need to coexist and the other much more militant, like, no, we're going to, we're going to need to fight for every inch. And you know, (laughs) both figures met a similar end. Um, I think if you were to look at, at race relations right now, who's to say who was right. And maybe if we, maybe if we canonized, uh, Malcolm X, as much as we have Martin Luther King, maybe things would be different. Who's to say, right. But that definitely does come through, uh, you know, when the X-Men series, whether it be the comics or the, the show or the movies, when they are operating at their best is when the lines are most blurred. Absolutely. And when both perspectives are giving their, their proper day in court. Yes. So that you, the audience get to decide. I mean, obviously the story is going to make a decision for you, Yeah, but you, the audience will get to decide as to who makes the more compelling case. Um, I I completely agree. And I think that's part of what we've been scratching at with black Panther in terms of T'Challa's relative conventionality and Killmonger's, very compelling, not only personal story, but philosophy about like, I must admit you have Wakandans sitting on the solution to so many problems right? and they're sitting on them. Yeah. And while on one level I understand the, well, once you let something get out, it can be exploited. Um, but at the same token, it's like, yeah, but how much good are you not doing right by hiding this so which makes killmonger's perspective all the more compelling right because we as the audience at least partially agree with him at least partially understand why he's pursuing this yeah it's the issue is that he wants to go one step further right it's well no we can all agree that wakanda is probably wrong for disengaging with the world to the degree that it has, it needs to engage with the world. It look at its amazing resources. Look what it has to offer the world. Whereas, and I have a, a, a line here said by uh, Najobu, uh, played by Sterling K. Brown, uh, who is Killmonger's father. Right. He says, "I observed for as long as I could. Their leaders in talking about the U.S. Their leaders have been assassinated. Communities flooded with drugs and weapons." They're overly policed and incarcerated all over the planet. Our people suffer because they don't have the tools to fight back with vibranium weapons. They can overthrow all countries and Wakanda can rule them all the right way. And it's right. And it's there that it's just like with vibranium, we can do amazing things, Mm -hmm. but it's, we can overthrow countries and we can rule them. Right. And it's like, well, you had me and Mm, then you lost me because you know, it's, and you, you mean well when he says we'll rule them the right way mm-hmm. and it's just like, yeah, I feel like I've heard that before yeah, right. from people that almost invariably wind up ruling the wrong way. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's the thing is like, like the, I think the best villains, 
their motives are not merely understandable, but in some cases, maybe even a little bit commendable. Yeah. They just go too far. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that Batman, the animated series works as well as it does is that it's villains. They, I will not say they are sympathetic, but their origin stories. You're like, Hey, I get it. Yeah. You know, the difference is they decide, you know, their origin stories are in their own way, not dissimilar from Batman's. Right. He chose to go one way. They chose to go to, uh, with another, mm-hmm. you know? And so, uh, I think it's precisely because I think it's, it's precisely because so many people are saying like, yeah, man, kill my Killmonger's right. It's precisely because so many of us instinctively think that that makes him the villain Yeah, because his yeah. way is the easier way. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, it is Batman's, you know, uh, that is not the companion film, but you know, we're talking about superheroes. They're all going to kind of play into it. It is Batman's decision not to kill. Mm -hmm. It is professor Xavier's decision not to try to kill normal humans or take, take them over. Like that requires sacrifice and restraint and a tremendous capacity for forgiveness. Absolutely. You know, and compassion. And compassion, you know, and, um, and so looking at some of these other lines, this is one from Magneto. He says, does it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that one day they will pass that foolish law or one just like it and come for you and your children. He says, there is no land of tolerance. There is no peace, not here or anywhere else. And then even Wolverine says the whole world out there is full of people who hate and fear you and you're wasting your time trying to protect them. Mm-hmm. You know, it just keeps, it, it keeps going like this and it makes sense. Like this is a, there is no land. Magneto says there is no land of tolerance. He's right. Yeah. You know, there are, there are probably countries that get it closer to right, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, Valhalla is not for this world. And, oh, right. um, and how we respond to that, how, uh, how we respond to injustice because injustice tends not to nobody's life is perfect and some people are cheated in one way or another, but there is a, a larger injustice where like certain groups tend to be more singled out historically, you know, I'd say Jews, for example, um, Uh, and native Americans, native Americans who, yeah, there's, it's a thing I've been thinking about lately. And ever since I was a kid, I've actually had an odd, it's weird. I don't know where it came from. Um, I'm glad it's there that I've always had an odd, uh, heartbreak for like the plight of native Americans, because when it comes right down to it, like they have been so thoroughly decimated that we don't even, we don't even care about if movies are, if they're represented, you know, and, and at school they always talk, we always talk about like representation. Nobody, is clamoring for native American representation because nobody cares. Yeah. And that is, it's not that they don't care. It just isn't even in our mind. Yeah. I think there is an old, and I'm I'm not going to try to repeat it verbatim because I would never do it justice, but I think there's an old Chris rock observation where he said like, nobody had it worse than, than the Indians because you never see more than two of them together at a time. Yeah. And, and I mean like that's, I do think that that is, that speaks to, and it's so funny that you bring this up because in in the quote, we'll rule them the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, in uh, what's Sterling K. Brown's character's name in, in, in Jobo, um, that is the first thing that I thought of. Mm-hmm. Is I thought of the people who come in and referred to the Native Americans as savages. Yeah, we will. 
you know, they need us yeah. to come in and show them the way. When essentially yeah. what you're doing is destroying a culture. Yeah. And essentially what you're doing is is uh, to use matrix language out of the blue is is you're virusing this. You're coming in like yeah. a virus and you're just consuming and you're just destroying. And I think that is another component to what makes the villains like Killmonger and Magneto so compelling is that in a sense, this is a bold statement, but in a sense, there are privileges that we enjoy mm -hmm. because of people who thought at least in the ballpark yeah. of them oh, and, hap and happened to win. Yes. No question about it. Um, there's a sequence in the second X-Men film mm -hmm. where Brian Cox is a, is a human character who hates mutants. His own son is a mutant and sure. he just, just uses him as a complete slave. And so, and he actually, you know, uh, uses Cerebro mm -hmm. to target like all of the mutants in the world right. so that he can then kill them. Right. At which point Magneto stops him like Magneto and Xavier and the X-Men, they stop him. Cause like, Oh, we can't have all the mutants dead. And while, and it's like, okay, well we stopped him. And Magneto's like, well, you know, as long as we're here yeah. and he moves everything around, it's like, okay, we are now targeting non-mutants. Right. And it's one of those things that it's just like, there's not that much difference. Right. The difference right. is that in the world of X-Men, humans are actively, certain humans are actively trying to oppress mutants. So right. it looks, it, it certainly seems more justified to like, no, no, we're going to, we're going to turn the tables on them right. and, and, you know, and strike out for ourselves. But in both cases, it's, I see a group of people and they need to go. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, and it's tough because when it comes right down to it, you and I are two white guys mm -hmm. talking about right. this. And, and as we move, as we move into like, you know, my various Bible passages and stuff like that, you know, I don't know what it's like to be, uh, a mutant, um, <laughs> right, you know, right. or native American or female or yeah. gay or African American. I don't know what any of that is like, right. You know, right. but what I, and so I want to acknowledge that there, there's part of me that's just like, I wonder if I feel, I feel like I should have somebody who represents that. But when it comes uh, on the show, if we're going to talk about it, but admittedly, I am also of the opinion that like the reason Killmonger is the villain. And I think it's bold to put such sense in his mouth because it doesn't necessarily negate what he is saying, but what, what Kugler is saying is like, no, we are officially rooting against him. And I think if you ask anybody, even if they feel for him, they don't want him to win. Yeah. They do want T'Challa to win. Same mm -hmm. as 10 years ago. Like Joker has a lot of good points, but we don't actually want him to win. Right. You know, and I think when it comes right down to it is that I think we all acknowledge that in some capacity, everybody, whether it be a group or an individual, everybody can say, you don't understand. It's yeah. different for me. Yeah. I'm aggrieved. I have been wronged. And in some cases, it's probably true. Yeah, sure. In many cases, it's probably true. And in some, it might be at a much deeper level. Mm -hmm. But the minute you start saying like, no, 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 the rules that we all live by, 
don't actually apply to me because I have been so horribly wounded and you don't get to talk about that because, you know, and everybody can play that card Mm -hmm. and Killmonger is, is, and I don't mean to say play the card as though that's all it is. He's, you know, he's been robbed of his, of his family Mm -hmm. of his birthright. You know, he has a legitimate beef, Yeah, but using that, he feels perfectly justified in hurting a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, and so by the end, um, and the more extreme his character is, the more T'Challa learns and realizes like, I need to make some changes. And so his speech here at the end of the film says, Wakanda will no longer watch from the shadows. We cannot, we must not. We will work to be an example of how we as brothers and sisters on this earth should treat each other. Now more than ever, the illusions of division threaten our very existence. We all know the truth more connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. I love that quote so much. And then there's a line by, I'm sorry, I don't know how you say this name. Okoye. Okoye. Mm -hmm. She is talking to Killmonger Mm -hmm. and she says, you are so full of hatred, you will never be a true king. Mm. True. Right. She doesn't say you'll never be king because he is. He's, yeah, he acquired it's, it. You'll never be a true king. Mm-hmm. Like if this is what's going to govern you mm-hmm. and this is how you're going to govern, then you do not know what it means to be an actual king, yes. to be an actual leader. You know, you'll know what it means to be a tyrant, mm-hmm. but you can't build a long lasting society on revenge. Right. And or hatred or right. fear, you know. And so looking at some of these uh, Bible verses the things I wanted to focus on are if you are aggrieved, you know, if you are the aggrieved party, if you have been wronged, whether it be because of who you are specifically or what you represent politically, ethnically, whatever it is. Um, so we'll read through some of these and then there, then we're going to transition into something else. Okay. So this is Job versus Uh, Job five verses eight through 16. If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth. He sends waters on the countryside, the lowly he sets on high and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Uh, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon, they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword, from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope and the, and injustice shuts its mouth. I will also read first, first Thessalonians five verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. All right. This is all very easy to say, mm-hmm. you know, like now, now don't pay anybody back. Let God do that. Right. There's not a guarantee that's going to happen in this life. Right. Right. You know, but what I will say, like, I, I'm happy that this long quote 
what went into as much detail as it did in Job. Job is one of the most, if not the most, aggrieved character, maybe short of Jesus, yeah, uh, right. in the Bible. Yeah. And, he st- and he's a guy who still had tremendous doubts about the injustice that was right. being done to him. Right. Um, and even he says, like, if I were you, I would appeal to God. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I do have some, some quotes here, um, by Martin Luther King, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And then I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war, uh, that that bright daylight of uh, daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Mm. So, you know, any number of things can happen in our lives that can create a sense of hate and a sense of, I'm going to, this is something that's been coming about in therapy for me later, uh, lately. Um, I, am perpetually disappointed by the people around me and Mm. by people in general. Don't go, don't worry. I'm also deeply disappointed in myself, (laughs) but the way it has worked out is this feeling of, I'm going to have to take care of myself. Mm. I can't trust other people to care at all about me Mm. because they've got their own issues. I can't necessarily blame them, but I also can't count on them. Yeah. You know, something that has come about in my own therapy is the feeling that a thing that I think I've said it on here before, um, you know, you say something and then you're like, oh, I didn't know I thought that. Right. Let's let's write that down. That seems important because, oops. Yeah. And there was a moment when uh, we were talking about me being defensive Hmm. and I said, well, I might as well defend myself because no Lord knows nobody else is going to. And in that moment, I was like, okay, that seems deep. That seems like a deep one, right, a deep wound. Right. Yeah. And, and it, and when you think about it, it's like, we might as well, like what Killmonger is saying is like, we might as well defend ourselves because no one's going to do it for us. No one is looking out for us. We're going to have to look out for ourselves. And you know what? I'm kind of tired of that. Right. Yeah. So now we're going to do it a little bit different. We're not even just going to defend ourselves anymore. We're going to go on the offense. Yeah. And it's a completely... I won't say reasonable. It's a completely understandable conclusion to come to. Yes, certainly. And so if you are somebody that is aggrieved, when you look at these things about how God is going to eventually at some point, I guess, maybe maybe punish the guilty and will raise you up. It's very difficult to think in those terms. Um, And so here's what I'll, so, but we are called to do that, to just leave this to God to, tr- to work as hard as we can to forgive the people who are hurting us and mm-hmm. oppressing us, right. you know, the way Jesus, you know, prayed for the people that don't know what they're doing. Sure. But the flip side of that is this second Corinthians 13 verse 11. Then I have several others strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Proverbs 31 eight and nine speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute speak up and judge fairly defend the rights of the poor and the needy isaiah 1 verse 17 wash and make yourselves clean 
Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then I will, I will throw Jeremiah to you. Jeremiah 22, verses 3 through 5. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. All right. So on one hand, if you are the aggrieved, um, if you have been hurt, if you've been wounded, we are, you know, you are called, we are called to pray for those that have hurt us, to rely on God. And to go back to what I was saying earlier, the idea, it's like, I might as well defend myself because nobody else will. Right. For those of us who maybe aren't in the current state of having been wounded, <laughs> understanding mm-hmm. it'll probably happen eventually. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's, it, maybe it has happened, but certainly not quite as debilitating as others. Sure. It's a lot easier for somebody to forgive. It's a lot easier for somebody to rely on God if they feel like you are in their corner. Yeah. A person like myself might not feel like I need to defend myself if I get the impression that there are people in the world that are for me and will defend me. Right. Um, You know, those rare, there have been rare moments when um, I've said something on BP or on MTOL or in that political article I wrote (sighs) and somebody just does not, is just not having it. And they just like rip into me and part of me is like, okay, so do I chime in or do I just let it be? Mm. And then much to my surprise, somebody chimes in and says, I don't think you understand what Tyler is saying here. And they speak for me and right. And they defend me and it feels so wonderful because on one hand it feels like, okay, so there's at least somebody out there that understands me. Yeah, right, um, right, right. But it also, it's nice to, to have people fighting alongside you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it would be, I think, foolish and I think oblivious of us to look at groups of people and say, hey, I know things have not been great for you, but God says you need to forgive. He says to leave vengeance to him. So, you know, sorry. Well, I'll see you later. Right. That would be, I think, um, a bit solipsistic uh, mm-hmm. of us. Um, because the Bible also says that we have a responsibility to look at the people that society has not treated particularly well. Right. And that we need to strive not merely to take care of them ourselves, but to make changes so that it is not quite so easy to mistreat them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now, you know, I'm politically right leaning and I don't necessarily believe every single thing that, uh, left-leaning politicians or commentators or instructors or fellow students or the people that are in my life. I don't necessarily believe everything that they think, but I, I have to force myself to be like, okay, because the person saying it probably has an agenda just as I do. Sure. Um, 
I'm not going to believe it immediately, but that doesn't mean it's not actually true. I need to look into it. Mm-hmm. And if it is true, I need to do something about it. I right. need to like, you know, whether you, we could be talking about systemic racism or the idea of like cops singling out, uh, you know, uh, black men, uh, mm-hmm. specifically right. and, and right. shooting them too quickly. You know, um, there's been a lot of political issues, uh, not issues, a lot of political rhetoric thrown around in regards to those things. Sure. And if it turns out that they were wrong or they were played up as part of a, a general narrative to get people to vote a certain way. Okay. I'm not happy about that. But even let's say nine of them were, let's say nine of these instances were just pure that. And when it comes right down to it, yeah, I guess the cop was probably justified. I'm speaking hypothetically. Please. Yeah, of course. Let's say nine of them were that, but one of them wasn't. That one is not acceptable. Right. And right. we need to do everything we can. We need to. And I don't even know what that is. I don't know what that looks like for me. Does that mean writing my congressman? Does it yeah. mean signing a petition? Who knows? Sure. But that's not acceptable. That is, you know, that is whether it be a group or a family or an individual that has been wronged and them having been wronged is contingent very much on people that are not politically sympathetic to them saying like, eh, it's fine. Right. You represent right. something that I'm not super thrilled about. Right. Um, you know, I, and I feel, I, I know I'm speaking in, in very broad terms, but it's something that, you know, a lot of Christians tend to also be rather right leaning. And, you know, one of the reasons that Donald Trump was elected was because a lot of conservatives felt like they were just beaten over the head mm. by, you know, liberal commentators saying like, you're not, a, you're not allowed to say this and this and this. Right. And while I am sympathetic to that, it's like, well, we did elect somebody who winds up being exactly what people have accused us of being. So yeah. good job on that, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, but I think it's, it's very easy to dig our heels in and not recognize that we are dealing with human beings and historically whether it be African Americans or, you know, gays and lesbians or, you know, or, uh, immigrants, um, whether they be, you know, uh, uh, undocumented or otherwise, mm-hmm. um, life is probably harder for people in certain groups. Maybe right. not everyone. Yes. I recognize that, 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 you know, Colin Powell is probably doing fine. <laughs> you know, I right, recognize right, that, right. but that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, African Americans in Inglewood here in right. Los Angeles that are doing swell, right. you know? And so what you, so my job is to look past politics, to look past my own comfort, right. Philosophical or otherwise. And to say like, okay, if I am going to be so quick to say, Hey, you know what? The Bible says that you shouldn't, uh, shouldn't seek vengeance. Then I should be equally quick to say, what can I do? Right. To bring comfort to the afflicted. Right. Because the, the, there's a, a Chesterton quote that is uh, often thrown around. I'm, I'm summarizing an entire paragraph. Um, so it's not a direct verbatim quote. But essentially, he addressed one of society's ills by saying that, that we can all agree there's a problem. Yeah. Where we disagree is how to solve it. Right. And, and, and what to do about it. And I think in terms of we, we've brought in political issues, we can look at the current climate of our of our day. Uh, you can look at the situation between Killmonger and T'Challa. It's like Killmonger is right 
about the problem, mm-hmm. which, as we've said multiple times, is part of what makes him a compelling villain. Yeah. He just takes things one step further. Yeah. So the compulsion is then, yes, you want to stop the further negative impact of, of this natural progression. But at the same time, what we have a tendency to do in our current climate is to also reject the premise from which they launched that, that yes. mission. And that we do so, in my opinion, uh, erroneously. Yeah. That what can be the tendency right now on both sides of the political spectrum and the social spectrum is to say, well, you extend from because I disagree with what you want to do right. or what you are not willing to do, yeah. then your fundamental underlying perspective right. must be flawed or faulty. Yeah. Instead of listening to a perfectly valid from a set of experiences or from from a sequence of their own internal logic, something, something entirely valid yeah. is there uh, or else whole cloths of people would not probably have adopted it. The problem is it might have gotten misshapen. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm, I'm wanting to use the word perverted, but that sounds a bit extreme. But right. Somewhere along the way, it took on a form that is not going to be helpful and whole. Yeah. Um, but that does not mean that the, the seed from which it extended does not have value and should not be addressed and, and, and understood. And I think the path to reconciliation involves understanding that that nugget, that yeah. seed, that kernel, and understanding why that is the way that is, yeah. so that we can offer up a better solution that that yeah. will be. And and yes, as we are aggrieved, as we are uh, prone to wanting to simply just retaliate and seek vengeance, the better thing to do would probably be to say, like, let me find out what's at the root of of this, yeah. what's causing this. There's there's a line. Um, in the West Wing, this is actually after Sorkin left, but it's in a, you know, people malign the West Wing after Sorkin leaves, but I think there's some really good stuff in there. And there's an episode uh, in which past presidents show up, one of them played by James Cromwell. And he's like a one-term president, not particularly popular. Uh, And there's a moment where, and I don't have the quote in front of me, so I can't remember exactly, but he has a moment where he says, he's like, yeah, we really didn't have the answers, but I like to think by the end, we were all asking the right questions. Mm. And I think there is something to be said for like, you know, I think it's, I think it can be argued that T'Challa might not even acknowledge that there is a problem mm. because his life. Yeah. He still has to fight for his country and, and put himself in harm's way, but it's still within a very specific environment that right. is heavily controlled right. by him. He's not in the thick of it the way Killmonger was. Right. And so he might not think that there's a global issue that he can do anything about. And then Killmonger comes along and says, yes, there is. And here's what I'm going to do about it. And so, you know, when faced with the extreme solution, it's like, okay, well, obviously that can't happen. Sure. We can't let that happen. But at the very least, we can acknowledge there is a problem at the very least we can, you know, we might not all have the solu- the right solutions. We might not agree on the solution, but my hope is that eventually we can all agree that we're asking the right questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would, I would encourage people, you know, this, this is a very, uh, politically charged time and a very politically charged film, like go to YouTube and see right. people's responses to the film. Yeah. Uh, and certain people they have, like they, they talk about, 
the, the political agenda of the film and some of their points. I'm like, Oh, I see what you mean. And I might even agree with you, but first off, that doesn't necessarily mean the movie is bad, which is a big thing that gets me on top of everything else. Cause like it's still a lot of fun to watch. Um, and still incredibly engaging. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it is very charged and listeners, you know, you might be left-leaning, you might be right-leaning and you might have a very different interpretation of things and that's fine. But I would say, hopefully putting aside, you know, the, the specifics of the movies, like just if you, if we look at what the Bible says, it, it ultimately says like, we, we really need to have, uh, a heart for the people that society has cast aside or have found themselves cast aside, whether it be systemic or otherwise, like we need to have a heart for those people. And if we find ourselves becoming those people, we can't necessarily, we we are not justified in taking it out on society. Like all of these things have to like, these things work together and they really do need to work together. You can't simply say, Oh, sorry, I'm not, uh, Bible says that in your, if you're in this situation, you can't do anything about it. All right, I'm leaving. Right. You know, everything does work together in the Bible as this is how we should be behaving towards one another. Um, so, okay. Pretty uh, in-depth stuff, but it's appropriate. You know, we're back. Got a lot of, (laughs) you know, my hope is that with the episodes that we do record, you know, last week, our mini sode was like 55 minutes. So mm-hmm. my hope is that in the episodes we record from now on, that they are long enough to time-wise cover the amount that we missed. Okay, sure. That, that way, you know. Yes. So like if yes. every episode winds up being like 20 minutes longer than it normally would be like, okay, if we do this long enough, then that four months we were gone, it's like it didn't even happen. Exactly. We'll retroactively yeah, exactly. Uh, compensate. One way or another, we will waste a good portion of your time, <laughs> listener. Um, but anyway. Stick with us. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and, and leave it there. Um, listeners, thank you so much for, for sticking with us. Uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, next week is going to be another mini-sode. It's going to be about the best picture of 1949. We're into the 40s now, wow. which is Robert Rosson's All the King's Men, a film that I think is absolutely wonderful and also frustratingly politically relevant to our times. Oh, um, oh, yes. So uh, so check that out. Um, in the meantime, uh, you can always uh, email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, feel free to check out The Fear of God. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it at More Than One Lesson. Yes. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Reed, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye.